we are running a little bit late, but um, I was just sitting there thinking, all right, can I, can I shorten my sermon very much? What, how do you shorten a sermon on that? <laughs> so if, if you, let, let's pray, and we'll pray that God gives us um, the strength to sit still for another 73 minutes. No. <laughs> Father God, thank you so much that we have been able to, for the last hour, worship you and pray to you and, and celebrate all your goodness to this place. Lord, as we turn and we look at, at the book of Joel and these, these final words that you speak there, Lord, I, I pray that, that you would just, Lord, open our hearts and our minds, Lord, that we might hear, that we might really take it in, Lord, that, that your truth and your words would borrow and would burrow deep into our souls. Holy Spirit, would you speak through me today, I pray. Amen. It was about four weeks ago that we started our journey through the book of Joel. It's, it's, it's one of those books which, uh, I think I said right at the first uh, sermon, uh, the book of Joel is one of those books which we don't actually spend too much time studying in, in, in regular life. It's not high on the, the Bible study guide agenda, I don't think. And it's strange because although it's such a small book, three chapters, or four if you read the, the Hebrew Bible, they put an extra chapter mark in there for some reason, three chapters, four chapters, whatever. It's a small book, but it is so massive in the topics that it deals with. And we could have done another four weeks through the book of Joel, I think. Because this book is all about who God is and what that means for us. And we saw in the first week that God is the one to whom we can cry, to whom we can run, to whom we can turn when it seems that life is against us. And we saw the week after that that, that the amazing thing is that although we are scumbag sinners, God loves us so much and, and longs for us to turn to Him. Remember that phrase, because He is the God who is compassionate and full of mercy, slow to anger, abounding in love. The one who, who says, Joel relents on sending calamity, says the New Testament, because He takes our calamity on Himself. And then two weeks ago, the week before Lloyd came, we saw that, that wonderful passage that Peter preached at Pentecost and we're reminded that that, that we who have Jesus have been empowered by the Holy Spirit to, to take God's offer of salvation to the world. And, and the, the news that, that on the day when the Lord returns in judgment, there is a way to be saved. And, and we have received that and we are challenged and, and empowered by the Holy Spirit to share that. And really the whole of Joel is about that day of the Lord. It's about the, the day when Jesus returns to judge the living and the dead. When I was going through high school, um, I picked up a terrible series of books uh, by Tim LaHaye and somebody Jenkins, the Left Behind series. Bad theology. Let me put that out there. Terrible theology. But the thing which, which I remember most about it is... Um, terrified it made me of the Lord's return. I was so frightened at the day of Jesus' coming. 
And you know, looking back on it now, that is just wrong for a Christian to be terrified about the day of the Lord. I mean, yes, they've got a point that, 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 that the day of the Lord is a terrifying day. I mean, how many times have we seen as we've looked through Joel, as God describes it in terms of, of the earth and the heavens shaking and, and the sun and the moon and the stars, I mean, switching off like a light globe when you turn on the power and the light just, bah, darkness. When God comes in judgment. But the message of Joel is that for Christians, the day of the Lord it's actually the most brilliant, wonderful, amazing, exciting, comforting day ever. Because it's the day, chapter 3, verse 1, when God acts to restore the fortunes, says Joel, of Judah and of Jerusalem. Because it's the day when God restores the fortunes of His people into which we through Jesus Christ have been grafted in. And as we'll see as we move towards the end of the chapter, this restoration that Joel speaks about right at the beginning of chapter 3 is it's nothing short of a, of a recreation. It's nothing short of, of, of the fall being undone and not just undone but extravagantly undone and, and all things being made new and, and, and I just love the way Joel finishes his book with this, this brilliant cry. You can see him. He's written everything down. He says, something's missing. I've got, the Lord dwells in Zion. Brilliant. Good news at the end of the story of the day of judgment. Yeah, I mean, we're not supposed to fear the day of the Lord. Because... Isn't it true that in Jesus Christ we have already faced God's judgment and God's decision over our lives? Our, our sins, we've already been decided to be sinners, but our sins have been destroyed on Jesus on the cross and we have been delivered into new life as Jesus rose from the dead. You'll see on the front of your bulletin I've got um, a, a cryptic title for today's lesson. I've lost my bulletin somewhere. It's, it's D squared over D. Or D squared or D. I'm going to do something which I thought, I thought to myself, I've never done three, le- three points beginning with D. I don't think I've ever done that in a sermon. Three points beginning with D. <laughs> and it's an option. You can either have the first two or you can have the last one. You can have decision and destruction. And you can have deliverance. In fact, we've all had decision, destruction and deliverance. The reason I asked Reg to read the last verse of chapter 2 is because the brilliant news of the Gospel is that that the decision and the destruction of our sins is offered to us now prior to the day when Jesus returns. But, but says Joel in, in verse 2 and 3 of, of chapter 3, if, if we refuse to accept that decision and that destruction of our, 
of our old self on the cross, well, justice must still be done and we will still face God's deciding our fate and, and ultimately, knowing who we are, God, God destroying us. Well, this, this image that we've got of God calling the nations together to the valley of Jehoshaphat, there's no such place that the archaeologists know of. It's, it's called a whole bunch of things in all the different prophets. Uh, in fact, in verse 14, uh, Joel himself calls it the valley of decision. Uh, a bit of Hebrew for you. Uh, Jehoshaphat means the Lord judges or, or Yahweh judges. This is the valley of judgment, the valley of decision. The day when God calls the nations, all the peoples to come together to... to, to well, to be judged. And they come. And they come with their, their mighty warriors and their strong soldiers. And they come and, and they're prepared to do battle against God. Maybe because they think God's, God's not going to be able to stand against them. There are so many of them. Verse 14, multitudes, multitudes of, of peoples there. So, so, so arrogantly do they think that God is powerless in the face of them that, that God says, look, even bring your weaklings along and let them say, oh, I'm a mighty warrior. I'm going to stand up against God. And everybody's there in this, in this valley of decision. And they're there because God has got some charges against them. We've got a few charges in verses 2 and 3. It says, God, I'm gathering the nations together because they have divided up my land. Because we as, as humans have treated creation as if it's ours and not God's. You know, in Leviticus, I think chapter 25, verse 23, God says to the Israelites, um, you're not allowed to sell the land in perpetuity. It's, it's not a, you can't have permanent sale of land because the land is mine and you humans, you Israelites, you are aliens and sojourners. You, you are visitors with me in my creation. So God says, you've treated what is mine as if it's yours. And he goes on, he says, and, and, and my other charge against you nations is that you, you have abused my people. You've traded them off for a quick fix of, of instant gratification. Isn't it a horrible, I mean verse 3, isn't that a horrible, horrible charge to be brought against you? You've, you've cast lots of my people. You've traded boys for prostitutes. You've sold girls off for wine so that you can get a bit of a drink. You can have a bit of booze. You can get drunk. And you know what strikes me as I look at these charges that God is bringing against all peoples of the earth? And it's really interesting here in Joel, God's judgment of the world seems to be on the basis of how the world has treated God's people. You remember the question, um, Paul then saw as he was going towards Damascus to 
to attack and, and destroy the Christians there and, and Jesus meets him on the road. Do you remember the question Jesus asks him? He says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Um, and, and Saul, uh, a smart bloke who knew the answer but didn't want to admit it, says, who are you, Lord? And he says, I'm Jesus whom you are persecuting as you persecute my church. It's the same as if you are attacking me. It's, it's just amazing to me that, that as God looks at us, at His people, the, the new Israel, to attack or destroy or harm or treat like nothing or, or whatever you want, one of us, one of God's people, is to thumb your nose at God. It's as if you were doing that to God Himself. And we've got here in verses 4 to 8 a little bit of an, of an aside because we might look at verses 2 and 3 and say, well, look, that's, that's theoretical charges. Give, give us an example, God. And God says, right, I'm, I'm going to give you an example. Uh, I'm going to tell you about Tyre and, and Sidon and, and the regions of Philistia. I'm going I'm to show you how these charges have worked out in history. You know, I love the sarcastic tone that he begins with in, in verses 3 and 4. What have you got against me, O Tyre, Sidon, and all your regions of Philistia? Are you repaying me back for something that I've done? You're paying me back. <laughs> Watch out, laddie. You don't know who you're dealing with. These three nations, historically we know, took what was God's. They, they took silver and gold and, and, and they took it to their own temples and they worshipped false gods. And they sold off God's people as, as slaves to the Greeks. But, but, but in all of that, they, they ignored the fact that they were dealing with the living God. They ignored the fact that if you try and take vengeance from God, God is the one to whom vengeance belongs. I mean, that saying, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay. And we've got here, and God says, right, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, you do the wrong thing, you're going to get it. You sell my people off as slaves, I'm going to sell you off as slaves. Uh, the, the Jews who hated water, by the way, not as seafaring people at all, sold off to the Greeks, um, brilliant boating seafaring people. God says, right, you sell my people to the seafarers, I'm going to sell you seafarers, Tyre, Sidon, Philistia, I'm going to sell you to desert people. You're going to go and live in the desert. Isn't grace wonderful? Eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Sell my slaves, I'll sell you. And where is mercy in that? Where, where is, uh, we said at the beginning, that the God who is compassionate and full of mercy and slow to anger and abounding in love. Where, where, is, where is grace in this? It's not there. You know, in the first... 16 
odd verses of chapter 3, apart from verse 1, there's not grace. Because Joel and, and God through Joel is speaking about the day of the Lord. He's speaking about the time when, when grace is no longer on offer. I mean, right up until that day, the offer of grace and life and security and, 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 and eternity is on the table. We saw that chapter 2 verse 32, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved, but on that day, too late. And so in verse 9, we've got God issuing again this call for the nations to come and, and prepare themselves for war. Uh, the word for prepare there in the NIV is actually, it's the word sanctify. It's, it's God saying to the people, come on, get ready to come and face me, the holy God. And we've got this image of a, of a battle forming in this valley. And the mighty men coming to stand against God to to oppose this decision maker, to oppose this judge. And they take their plowshares and they, and they work at them into swords and, and they, I think that's right, they're pruning hooks, whatever, the, the agricultural instruments. They, they take and they make them into instruments of war so that they can go and they can attack God. Just as an aside, uh, Isaiah chapter four, chapter 2 verse 4 and Micah chapter 4 verse 4 God says that in His kingdom with His people uh, His people will take their, their war instruments and turn them into agricultural instruments because there will be no more need for war. And here on the other hand we have those who, who reject God saying well we are gonna, we're going to come at you with everything we've got. We're going to go for you God and we're going to sort you out, and you think you can judge us, well, ha! We're going to get you. And all of verses 9 to, uh, to 21, except for, the very, uh, except for the last bit of chapter 21 and, and the last bit of verse 11, are spoken by God. And I just love the end bit of verse 11. Because we've got all these nations coming together ready for, for battle and for war, coming to, to fight against God and say we will choose our own destiny. We, we will not be held under by you, God. And, and, and there's more and more of them, multitudes upon multitudes. Verse 14 and verse 11, poor Joel is being told about this. I don't know, maybe he's being shown a vision of it. And, and he sees and he says, Lord, there's lots of people here. Lord, time for you to send your army down. Lord, time for you to send your warriors down. Look how many warriors there are. He sees all these nations arrayed against God. And he says, God, you better do something. Send your army. And look at verse 12. See how God responds. He doesn't say, oh, you're right, Joel. Let's send in the troops. Joel says, God, send in your army. There's lots of people here. And God says, right, let's get some more people in. And he sits down. Says, Joel, send in your troops, Lord. And God says, bring them in. I'm ready. I'm sitting down. 
it's like a, a fly on your arm. All these nations raid against God. It's like field mice against a lion. The world gets ready to fight and God sits down to judge. not at all intimidated by us. And why would he be? He made us. He sustains us. He, he, he is our very life. In verse 13, this great battle which the people are there for just doesn't happen. Because verse 13, the verdict is made, the decision is made, and the sentencing is done. Destruction comes. All the nations gather and God says, you are guilty. You're full of great wickedness. The harvest of the earth is ripe. The the vats are overflowing. The wine press is full. You came here to stand against me. Wrong decision. And the sickle swings and wickedness is cut off from the earth and from creation. You know, in Revelation chapter 14, John sees exactly the same thing. He sees Jesus, one like a son of man on the clouds. And the harvest is ready. And he swings his sickle and the earth is, is harvested. And on that day, says Joel, as the sickle swings, as the decision is made, the whole earth shakes. Who can stand against against God? And can the mighty warriors stand against God? Can 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 ex farmers with, with an old plowshare in their hands stand against God? Can can the weaklings stand against God? I mean, even the earth and the sky and, and the whole universe, I think we're meant to understand from that, tremble at God's voice as he roars his judgment. Decision and destruction. I'm so glad Joel doesn't finish there. (laughs) Look at the end of verse 16. But the Lord will be a refuge for his people and a stronghold for the people of Israel. Isn't that brilliant news? Yes, a scary day. Yes, no one can stand except when we are in the refuge, except when we are with God, except when we are with the Lord. I mean, ultimately on that day, there are two places to be. Either you are for God or you are against God. Either you will face His decision and His judgment then, or you will face His deliverance. And I guess the problem, as we've prayed a few times today, is that we've got it easy We've got a great life here in Australia. I mean, John, yes, the government might have a few problems, but this is a great place to live. And for people to read the story of Joel is, ha, never happened. Look how much progress humanity has made in the last ten years. God can do nothing to us. The message of Joel is that that the mightiest might of mankind is 
as of naught in light of who God is. Because on that day, for us, verse 17, for us who know God, who, who know Jesus, who are His followers, the most brilliant, the most foundational of all truths, we will know that the Lord is God and that the Lord God is with us. And that He is dwelling with us. It says, verse 17, the holy God of all creation will be with us and we will be holy. Jerusalem, says Joel, will be holy. The, the new Jerusalem, as Revelation puts it, coming down from heaven, the dwelling place of God being with mankind. As, as God Himself is our light and our life for all eternity. It says Joel, there no foreigners will invade. In other words, there will be no unholy people. There will just be those whose names, again, Revelation, are written in the Lamb's book of life because all the unholy have been judged. The holy God of all creation will be with us. And as Joel hinted in chapter 3, verse 1, the curse that fell upon this world when Adam and Eve sinned and God said from now on you're going to have a tough, you're going to struggle to to make a living off the earth and you're going to have pain during childbirth and you're going to, Adam and Eve, you guys are going to fight like cats and dogs. And God says, no, on the day of of my coming in deliverance, I'm going to lift that so extravagantly and and look, the wine's going to be pouring off the mountainsides and the the milk's going to be running like streams and, and talking about streams is going to be a river of life giving water flowing from my house um, in other places flowing from the throne of God Himself. Uh, I think it's Ezekiel who says that this river will, will be so life-giving that as it flows into the Dead Sea it will make even the Dead Sea sweet water. Says Joel, Verse 20 and 21, the holy God of all creation will be with us and we will be forever changed. Those who stood against God, desolated and destroyed, those who belong to God, pardoned and blessed forever. As a young tacker, I used to love those choose your own adventure books. You know, the ones where you have multiple endings and depending on the choices that you made, you'd end up in one place or you'd fail your adventure or you'd, you'd win the prize, whatever it was. And that's life. You choose decision and, and destruction on the cross or do you choose to fight it out yourself? You know, I, I, I really don't like preaching on passages like this. I think I've said that before. It's not comfortable speaking about death and destruction and, and God destroying all those who don't belong to Him. I'd much rather tell you that God is full of grace and mercy and compassion. And He is, but 
Testament, what sort of grace would it be if it kept on forever? And isn't that our responsibility? I mean, we as Christians are going to have a great day when Jesus returns. But I think we need to read passages like Joel chapter 3 and ask God to break our hearts for our friends and our families. Because it's not just that they won't be with us, it's that they will face what we all deserve. Brothers and sisters, the day of the Lord is coming. And I don't want you to leave this place all sombre and sincere. I want you to leave here with just a smile on your face. The way that that Joel leaves us. He says the Lord dwells in Zion. Apostle John knew about that. He said the word has become flesh and has dwelt amongst us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only. Jesus has come and he is coming back again. John, as as he's towards the end of his life, he's revealed a vision of this great day. I think it's chapter 21 of Revelation. It says, On that day the dwelling of God will be with humankind. He will dwell with them and they shall be his people. The Lord dwells. Zion. Praise his name.